2: Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. You can now follow us on Twitter, at LetItRollCast, and we'd love to hear what you think, so don't be shy about tweeting at us or commenting on our website. This week, Author Peter Doggett joins Nate to talk about his book You Never Give Me Your Money, The Beatles After the Breakup In this episode, Peter tells Nate about the many legal, financial, musical, and interpersonal battles the individual Beatles endured after they tried to dissolve their partnership in 1970 They discuss out-of-control egos, drug use, Apple Inc., Alan Klein, and John, George, and Ringo vs. Paul Pop in those earbuds and enjoy
0: to let it roll i'm your host nate wilcox joined again by author peter doggett today he's here to talk about his book you never give me your money the beatles after the breakup peter welcome
1: Uh, um, hi good to be here again
0: cool and and thanks for coming and this is one of my favorite beatles books which is a difficult task how did you pick this topic
1: um i suppose it's fair to say it haunted me i was aware that i had to write it at some point and I kept putting it off because i had spent so much of the 80s and 90s writing about the Beatles that, to be honest, I felt completely beetled out. And all the time I knew I had this idea at the back of my head. And I kept thinking, it's okay, somebody else will do it. And they didn't. And eventually I just thought, this is ridiculous. If I don't do this, you know, this is never going to happen. And uh, But I, I was looking back at the book earlier today because – uh, you have to realise it's just over 10 years since I wrote it, so I have forgotten almost everything that's in it. Um, and I was reflecting how how serendipitous the whole thing was, because there was so much information and so many leads and so many contacts that, that, that just dropped into my lap down the years. I didn't go looking for them. I would turn up on some assignment somewhere and suddenly there would be something in front of me that was vital for this Beatles book. So um, I, I don't believe in God, but the, the, there was definitely somebody up there who wanted me to write this book.
0: Well, I'm glad you did. It's a great contribution to the literature, and and um, I think one of the things that you wrestle with, the, the supernatural aspects you brought up in the, your story of, of writing this book, I mean, that's what sort of dogged the Beatles, is that they became living myth, and they, and they were entwined with the myth of the 60s, and then their breakup is a classic story of an attempt to create a utopia that turns into a into a hell
1: uh, absolutely i mean I, I suppose that the, the, the um, saddest thing in the whole story, in a way, is not that the Beatles broke up. I mean, I'm, I'm leaving aside the fact that two of them died. In terms of the, of the four of them together, it's not that they broke up. It's the fact that they thought when they broke up that that was it. That was the end of the story, and they would go on with their lives. And I don't think either of uh, um, any of them for a second imagined that they would have this curse of being an ex-Beatle hanging over them um, not and not even during just during their lives, but even uh, for John and George. Now they're dead. They're still John and George of the Beatles,
0: and their estates are going to continue having to manage uh, the Apple Empire um, if they could even call it Apple anymore. And we'll get to their whole lawsuit with Apple Computers hopefully before the end. But you start the book with a prologue covering. December 8th, 1980, the death of John Lennon. Why did you choose to, to get that out of the way first?
1: Um, because I, I suppose it was the most important story in the period that I was I was um, writing about, which was from the, the late 60s, when the first tensions came into their relationship, up to the time when I was writing the book, 2009. Because with the death of John Lennon, all the world's fantasies about a Beatles reunion, it, um, all the sort of secret discussions amongst them about would they get back together, well, well suddenly they couldn't anymore. Um, as, as George Harrison said, there can't be any Beatles reunion as long as John Lennon remains dead. Except, of course, of there was. <laughs> yeah, and we'll,
0: get, and we'll get to that. But in that prologue, you cover kind of the beginning point. The, the, the thing when... The Beatles' myth really turns sour. It starts with the death of Brian Epstein in 1967, their loyal but somewhat naive manager.
1: Yeah. Um, although he was naive, as you say, and, and an awful lot of the, um, the deals and contracts that he signed turned out to be not necessarily in the Beatles' best interests in later years, he had one great advantage over everybody else who dealt with them subsequently, which was that he only cared about them. I'm sure he wanted to to make his 25% as well, but ultimately his biggest aim in life was to safeguard the Beatles, keep them happy, keep them keep them functioning, and help them to do what they did. Now, everybody else who came along afterwards already knew that the Beatles were were famous and that they were a cash cow, and um, it's it's it it's not surprising if you're turning up in 1970 or 1980 and getting involved with one or more of the Beatles, you know, you're going to make huge amounts of money. And that obviously influences the the advice that you dish out.
0: And another actor came on the scene around that time who many blame for the breakup of the Beatles. You, You strike a pretty balanced note, but she's definitely a formidable figure. I'm talking about Yoko Ono, of course, John Lennon's second wife who, came along to the sessions at the White Album and broke uh, all the precedents for the way the Beatles conducted their sessions and the way they treated their wives.
1: Yeah, and if, if, if you ask Yoko about this, she will say, well, look, it wasn't my idea to come to every Beatles session after 1968 and sit two inches away from John while he was making music and in some cases get him in the way of the sight line between Lennon and McCartney. It was John's idea. He wanted her there. As soon as that relationship started, he decided almost overnight, okay, this is the big relationship of my life now. The Beatles was yesterday. And so if it's going to be John and Yoko, it's going to be John and Yoko everywhere, even during Beatles recording sessions.
0: And and that changed the dynamic that you have a quote from Derek Taylor, who was their press officer and, and became the one of the driving forces at Apple Records, that up to that point, that they had a way of dealing with each other's weaknesses so that only their strengths were displayed to the public. Do you feel like the introduction of Yoko into the studio totally killed that dynamic or just made it harder to get there?
1: I think it absolutely killed it. I mean, if you you just translate that into our own lives, if there's a situation where... You you have a human human dynamic that works, whether it's two people or three people. And then you put somebody else in who is entirely only interested in one of the people in that relationship. Then, of course, you can't you can't act the same way as you did before. Um, And in particular with, with with the relationship between Paul McCartney and John Lennon it worked because they were able to be incredibly rude with each other and incredibly supportive, depending on what the situation required. And suddenly, with Yoko there, um, I, I do feel sorry for Paul because I think he felt completely, um, what's the best word? Restrained, certainly restricted. He was held back by the fact that, okay, I can't, I can't be myself because there's this stranger in the room.
0: And one of the dynamics of the breakup that I think you do a good job of capturing is the way that Paul sort of got trapped in this loop of self-doubt and bad behavior. And and one of the moments that you document is when John and Yoko were staying at Paul's house, and Paul was trying to be welcoming but then he would pull stunts, and, and we'll talk about all the Beatles and their individual warts, but I think that one of the worst things that you Grant Paul doing is this note that he left to John and Yoko about you and your Jap Tart think you're so great.
1: Yeah, now this story, I can't 100% prove it. It, it, it. it came from his girlfriend at the time, Frankie Schwartz, and that's what she wrote about. Um, but it sort of makes sense in that once that relationship was interrupted in the way I was just describing then suddenly Paul didn't know what to do with himself, he didn't know how to act Um, and I I mean we we were talking recently about about Crosby, Stills and Ashen Young and I was saying that I had a um, a, a sort of secret symp- sympathy for Stephen Stills because although he was the most difficult member of the of the band to deal with he was also the one who was placed in the most difficult position and with Paul McCartney it's exactly the same thing I felt intensely sorry for him um, in, fact, in fact you've reminded me that whilst I was writing this book Um, As a huge fan and a huge fan going back over decades, I found this really difficult because I kept wanting to jump into the story and say, don't do that. And particularly in Paul McCartney's case, he was always reacting to to what John would say. He would always act like a hurt child and have to have his say back. And if he could just have, it would have been tough, but if he could have stood back from the conflict occasionally and just gone, okay, I'm letting this go over my head. I'm not going to react then maybe the whole story would have been very different.
0: And yet he was a human being and, and you know, they accomplished so much that seems miraculous with their music and the Beatles story up to 1967. There's very rarely a point when you're like, don't do it. It's almost always, Oh boy, here comes another lucky break or uh, another classic example of perfect timing or, or, you know, digging deep and, and coming through when the chips are down. But after the death of Epstein and the arrival of Yoko Ono, it seems like they've all got feet of clay and, and, they all turn against Paul or Paul turns them all against himself against him. I mean, even though John is the one who brings in Yoko as the disruptive force and he, and John's anything but supportive of George Harrison's music. I mean, that's another dynamic that comes through that's sort of mystifying is John was viciously critical and negative about the flowering of George Harrison's talent, which, you know, is universally recognized from the time of, of while my guitar gently weeps on up through, you know, uh, his contributions to Abbey road and then his early solo career as, you know, peak work as brilliant as anything. Any of the Beatles did during their career together. And yet Paul is the one that drove George crazy and that George couldn't work with. And Ringo even quit because of Paul. Ringo was the first to quit.
1: Yeah. And if, and from Paul's point of view, all he was trying to do was get them to do some, do some bloody work, you know, just focus on what they were doing. Um, And, of course, Paul McCartney being intensely creative and also multi-talented, he was a great guitarist. He can play reasonable drums, so he would always have an idea about what the other guys should be doing. And um, maybe you can get away with that for a year or two in in a band, but after a while it starts to grate, particularly when, particularly in George's case, as you say, he was emerging as a creative figure. But you you, you mentioned about, about John and George, It's true. The last couple of years of the Beatles, almost every time there's a George Harrison song on the agenda, mysteriously, John's not there. He he misses the session or he does virtually nothing. And yet George kept going back to this, this occasion, the first time that he and John took acid together. He said they looked each other in the eyes and they knew each other. And this. This word "new" comes with a huge capital K. They knew each other through eternity. And so it didn't matter after that point for George how badly John treated him because he knew John and he felt that John knew him and that bond transcended everything else.
0: And let's take a break for a second to hear uh, a song. This is We have to pick this one. This is uh, Paul McCartney's song from Abbey Road, You Never Give Me Your Money. And that was the Beatles doing You Never Give Me Your Money from Abbey Road. And a great song title they gave you right there. A book title they gave you right on the (laughs) Silver planet.
1: Absolutely. it, It was impossible to avoid that as a title, really. Although I seem to remember, I won't mention any names, but the American publisher who published this book wanted me to call the book The End. And I said, well, the whole point is, it's not The End. And so we went backwards and forwards, and luckily I was able to stay with with the the, um, the title as it was.
0: I'm glad you were able to penetrate the thick-headed American there. And so one last point before we move on to the Alan Klein era, but I find it also interesting that of all the Beatles pre-Yoko and pre-breakup, John Lennon was the most dependent on the others, and at the beginning of the book, Apple Records isn't the only utopian scheme they're tossing around. They're even seriously looking at buying an island in Greece for the whole gang to move down
1: to. I know, with with, with four small islands... off the the coast so they can each retire to their separate one and then come together or or I think it started out in um, originally it was going to be in Britain and they were going to have this giant dome and with with four separate wings um, rather like the the glass houses in Kew Gardens for any of you who've ever been to London um absolute fantasy and how how ironic that they were coming up with these ideas about a commune about about being a collective just at the moment that they were starting to fall apart
0: and you talk about the way their their unique situation in which they're surfeited with wealth and sexual opportunity to the point that they're completely jaded they've conquered the world they've they've made incredible artistic achievements and and you ask you know what is it that can keep these brilliant young men going and 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 a goal to meet in front of them to keep them motivated and happy and it seemed for a while that apple records and this utopian vision of you know controlled weirdness and and capitalism without the need to make money um that that would be it but but why why was apple doomed to fail
1: I, I think for two reasons. First of all, they tried to expand it too quickly um, because they were the Beatles. It wasn't enough to have a record label. They wanted to have retail stores and book publishers and a school and, you know, everything, every, every, every facet of, um, of, of, of sort of commerce. They wanted included under the same um, overall banner and also they insisted on using their friends as the, as their as their business advisors um it's it seemed certainly the first year or so of apple that the, that the only qualification you needed to work there was to have a liverpool accent and then you were in it didn't matter if you didn't know anything about accountancy or management and most of the guys didn't um, so you, you've got an organization that has is is, is set up with a way too utopian ideal and then you've got nobody who's qualified to make it work
0: yeah and their loyal aide to camp neil aspinall end up taking over the reins as he said you know never volunteer which he he volunteered (laughs) for this and they're in a situation where their manager has died but they're still tied to his company nims and Yet they don't have any of the paperwork even. They don't even know the deals that they've agreed to. And Aspinall has to piece all this together and, and go from lugging amplifiers you know and his, his night school chartered accountancy class to suddenly trying to get a handle on one of the biggest empires in music.
1: Yeah, I mean, he he is really the secret hero of the whole Beatles story post the death of Brian Epstein. Um, I wish more people had seen him. I mean, he was in the anthology. I only met him a few times and I didn't really know him, but I spent enough time with him to think, OK, I can see why you got on with John Lennon and George Harrison because he's he was from Liverpool. He was very sharp, very sarcastic, very ironic and very straightforward, just like John Lennon, in fact. Um and and having having gone to night school when he left, um, you know, when he left school at 15 or whatever, and he had learned a bit about accountancy and he managed to translate that into more than four decades of of, of more or less single handedly looking after the Beatles empire or empires and also feat of keeping all four of them on side at the same time so that when he died, he was still loved by by all all four Beatles or their estates. He was the, possibly the only person in the world who could have pulled that off. And the other key member of the Liverpool mafia
0: that played a big role at Apple was Derek Taylor, their press agent, who became the spokesman of Apple and, and also kind of was in the eye of the hurricane as far as the controlled weirdness and the reefer and whiskey and, and the party
1: atmosphere of the offices. Yeah, absolutely. God, I love Derek Taylor. Um, I met I met him quite a few times, had phone conversations with him, had lunch with him a couple of times. And if anybody's ever read his books, he was exactly like he comes across in the books, warm, witty, again, with 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 that characteristic Liverpool sense of humour. he w- he was just a wonderful guy to be around, and so so I can really understand why he became George Harrison's best friend, why why he was one of the few people from the past that John Lennon kept in touch with until he died. Um, the, he, his relationship with Paul was always more difficult, but he 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 was a brilliant combination of. Um, a really eager convert into into being a hippie, and um, the whole drug culture. At the same time, as he was a hard-bitten north of England journalist, you know, from from top top London newspapers. So he so he had that very um, what's the word cynical upbringing from being a journalist, and the complete idealism of being a hippie at the same time, all in the same in the same body
0: and yet he couldn't keep things under control and it's it's probably no one could have maybe epstein if he if he'd been alive but george harrison has a quote that you've got you know basically it was chaos he said and 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 his view of it was you know he was off meditating in india and john and paul get carried away with the idea and blow millions and 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 he has a statement about partnerships he says um it's a lesson to anybody not to have a partnership because when you're in a partnership with other people, you can't do anything about it or it's very difficult to. And at that point we were naive. I mean, I think that kind of sums up the dilemma that they're in for the
1: rest of their lives. It it, it does. But in the same way, he's all, he's almost saying, don't be in a band as well. You know, just be an individual. I mean, it's a, it's a tough, tough balancing act. I mean, we could, we could almost choose any any long-lived band in rock history and, and look at this dynamic about um, the pool between being all together and individuals. It's a really tough one.
0: Yeah, and the Beatles probably did more than anyone else to create that myth of the all-for-one, one-for-all boys club that conquers the world, that, that sent so many people, you know, the, the ultimate pied pipers of rock and roll, and they certainly paid the cost. And one of the people who extracted a lot of that cost from him was alan klein who i think pretty much the villain of the tale
1: well that that's how he's always portrayed um and of course it doesn't help that the first of all he was sued together with the other beatles by paul mccartney who couldn't stand him and also that he was then sacked in 1973 by john george and uh Ringo. And also, that at the end of the 70s, he went to jail for a couple of months in America for tax evasion. So it's easy to see how he comes out as the, as the villain of the piece. Um, but I'd say two things. First of all, I don't think anybody could have kept the Beatles together in 1969. And also, I'm not sure how many other um, managers or advisors in 1969 could have got such a good record deal for the Beatles as Alan Klein did um the trouble was that he was also taking money from the top and from the bottom at the same time um and of course the, the fact that he was so out of sync with um with Paul who who had his own in in laws really he he wanted them the Eastman family to uh, represent the beatles that was never going to work so he refused to sign up with Alan Klein who who was much loved for a few years by John George and Ringo oh I mean, it was a nightmare, and I tried really hard in the book not to portray him as what was Derek Taylor's – what did Derek Taylor call him? He he called Klein the Demon King, um, and I can see that. But at the same time, in a self-serving way, he was also doing the best he could for the Beatles at that time.
0: Yeah, he's got a track record, and he emerges as the villain in any number of musical stories, Sam Cooke, The Animals, Herman and the Hermits, Rolling Stones and in the Beatles. But at the same time, he had a very difficult portfolio in that he had to cooperate with the Eastmans in these legal battles, first with Epstein's management company, NEMS, which um, had been handed over to Robert Stigwood, uh, who the Bee Gees manager and Cream's manager, a guy that the Beatles had a personal beef with going back to 1963. Then the fight for Northern Songs, which they're publisher who'd been part of the original epstein george martin team dick james sold his shares out from under them without telling them, and and the record company and as you said he he won the fight with the record company and
1: got a great deal but he pretty much
0: blew the other two battles
1: yeah although in both cases they were completely weighted against him i mean he he came very late to both of those of those legal fights Um, I mean, isn't it weird how all these things happened at the same time? Um, It's it's almost as if Brian Epstein had set a series of traps, you know, okay, I'm going to die and I'll show you what's going to happen when I'm not around. And then two years later, oh, this is happening. That's happening. This is happening. All these pressures all, all, all colliding at the same moment.
0: And the, and the lack of communication and the infighting is ultimately what cost them the chance uh, to buy a, a, a controlling share in their publishing company and and what forced them uh, to get a pretty bad deal with NIMS. They, they managed to get out of that deal, but it was expensive and costly. And a lot of that was because, you know, John Lennon running his mouth in the press, uh, the Eastmans and Klein working at cross purposes, all very difficult stuff. But let, I want to break in and play one more song. This is Ringo Starr's early 1970.
1: He's on a farm, got plenty of chompy feet. He's got no cows, but he sure got a whole lot of sheep. A brand new wife and a family. And when he comes to town, I wonder if he'll play with me.
0: And that's Ringo trying to tell the story of what was going on in early 1970, which we haven't quite got to. So we've got we've got our work cut out for us and got to get a move on. to But the Beatles break up in this almost inadvertent way. And even though Ringo had quit during the White Album and come back, George quit during Let It Be and come back. John announced that he's going to quit internally uh, in 1969, but it's not made public. Paul of all people who is the the one who wanted to break up the band the least ends up almost accidentally breaking up the band with this questionnaire that he put in his first solo album McCartney.
1: Yeah. Wait no, that that questionnaire only went out to the press but it was entirely written by Paul. He came up with the questions, he came up with the answers. So it was he was he was the one who as you would say in London blew the gaff and everybody knew that yeah, it was out there in the press, and then the the the, the uh, journalist Ray Connolly, who to whom John Mellon had already let slip several months earlier that he'd left the band, but Ray had loyally kept quiet. Um, Ray Connolly spoke to Paul the day after the Beatles split up. Story came out, and Ray told me that Paul was heartbroken. He said, "I you know, I wasn't trying to break the Beatles up. I mean, I, I didn't know I didn't know what I was doing." So it was another occasion where if Paul had managed to keep his mouth shut, then, as I speculate in the book, I mean, it, if he hadn't done that questionnaire, the stories wouldn't have been in the papers. And it's possible that six months later, John Lennon being John Lennon would have turned round and phoned the others up and said, OK, where are you? I want to record these songs. Let's get the Beatles together. And the whole story would have been different.
0: And it's so weird because there's nothing in the questionnaire that actually says the Beatles are breaking up.
1: No, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, yes, I mean he's asked all uh, he asks himself all sorts of very pointed questions about. Do, can you imagine working with John again? And do you miss Ringo and all this kind of stuff? But he doesn't actually say. You're right. He doesn't say. Oh, and by the way, the Beatles are over.
0: And yet, once the cat was out of the bag, as it were. Nobody could put it back in, even though at that point, I mean, and, and through the years, all four of them went to points where they were perfectly willing to do a reunion. And, and you've got a quote from George from early 1970 where um, he says, we all have to sacrifice a little in order to gain something really big. And there's a big gain by the Beatles recording together. I think musically and financially and spiritually for the rest of the world, you know, I think the Beatles music is such a big sort of scene that I think it's the least we could do to sacrifice three months of the year, at least just
1: to do an album or two. I think it's very selfish that the Beatles don't record together. Yeah. And you, you, you hear that and you think, well, he's right, surely. But I I wonder once you would started to have, have those internal fault lines, Even if they had managed to get back in the studio together in 1970, for example, how long would it have taken before there was the first fight about, oh, George, would you mind playing this or, you know, that kind of thing? Ringo, what about, you know, doing an extra drum fill there? And then all hell might have let, let loose. So, although it's a lovely idea, this this thing that they they can all bury their egos for three months three months of the year and make Beatles records, I think if they had buried their ego, their egos, they wouldn't have been the four individual Beatles.
0: Yeah, and and this this notion of a reunion, you know, dogs all of them through the seventies. It's basically the first question in every interview. They're they're that they give until the death of John Lennon. And then even after the death of John Lennon, it continues to haunt them all the way up until the nineties when they do sort of have a, have a reunion, which that finally put it to bed and, and listening to their body of work. I mean, especially if you end up with Abbey road rather than let it be, if you
1: play, let it be in its
0: chronological order when it was recorded and have Abbey road as a capstone. I mean, it's hard to go out better than the end.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, and I'm, I'm not putting down any of their subsequent solo work when i when i agree with you because although the songs that they were writing individually at that point um or you know the year after that included some of the best work that any of them ever did um as a as a, as a collaboration yes there's something about abbey row particularly the second side that just sounds like a perfect gem i mean it, it is the beatles and also if, if they had gone on but beyond that point the world outside them had changed it was as if with abbey road they were still just about holding on to the same sort of vision of what a pop group was supposed to be like that had seen them through the 60s um that wouldn't have worked in the 70s um so there's the danger that they well, they either would have had to have become something very different perhaps something something more like john lennon's plastic on band album or they would have started to seem very soft alongside. I don't know, the Stones of Sticky Fingers and the Who of Who's Next.
0: Yeah, and, and so in some ways, you know, I think we can take comfort that they completed their work as the Beatles, and, and it's pretty perfect. There's the 12 sessions and, and the 10 great albums, and, and, you know, it's this beautiful body of work. But the fascinating thing about the book is is that the story doesn't end, that all of these men had to live with this ghost of the Beatles and all of them had to come to terms with it and accept it. And and they do to varying degrees, but there's a lot of nasty fights first. And Paul ultimately has to file suit against the other three Beatles, even though it's Alan Klein that he wants
1: to be shut up. Yep. That's it. Which, which he says, and I can well believe him was the most difficult thing he ever had to do in his life was well, certainly up to that point. Um, because he, he was for the first time taking all of the Beatles to, dirty laundry and putting it out in public um after that you couldn't you couldn't pretend that everything was okay in the garden i mean the 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 garden was a scorched earth and and all all the sort of mythology of the beatles seemed to have been destroyed and yet as you say people kept wanting the reunion despite that
0: and and it's it's so ironic that paul ended up as the bad guy and and he very much did even though john and yoko worked overtime from 1968 on to do everything they could to destroy the beatles myth i mean there's the posing for the nude album cover two virgins the the bed ins for peace i mean deliberately making fools of themselves and and an attempt to promote the concept of peace and you know and it's just sort of the first of a series of wild swings that Lenin goes through I mean he becomes a radical politico he he goes all in on on primal screen therapy he you know and and infamously becomes a heroin addict for much of the rest of his life
1: yeah absolutely um I don't know it all I remember is as a teenage Beatles fan at the time if you read Certainly the the pop press in Britain, New Musical Express, Melody Maker, Disc. The entire world seemed to be on John Lennon and George Harrison and Ringo Starr's side. And hardly anybody had a good word, certainly in 1971, for anything to do with Paul McCartney. So he, he was completely pegged as he, he is the villain of the piece because he's the one who broke up the band by taking them to court. And of course what what nobody thought about was the fact that he had been driven way beyond the, the point of endurance to actually take that step.
0: And let's take one more musical break and hear George Harrison's version of Sue You, Sue Me Blues. was George Harrison's self-referential commentary on the whole endless business debacle that they were facing. And one aspect that you kind of you touch on, but you don't go deep, but I I think is a a big part of the story is the whole Paul is dead myth. And and the fact that some random radio DJs in Detroit launched this conspiracy theory at a time when it was very easy to spread disinformation and very hard to debunk it. Um, this mythology that Paul had died in a grisly accident in 1966 and, and replaced by a clone who could somehow write and sing Hey Jude uh, and Sergeant Peppers and Abbey Road and everything else Paul did. But that to me really epitomizes the way Paul lost his cachet completely. And, and he went from possibly the most beloved member of the Beatles, the most beloved mem- band on earth, and someone who was not only beloved and and cute and adorable, but also seen as a major artist and a major spokesman for the youth revolution of the time. And, and somebody right up there with Jagger and Richards and Bob Dylan and Curtis Mayfield and James Brown, one of the great artists of the era. And suddenly he's the hated man who breaks up the Beatles, the guy who sued his friends. The guy who 's on stage with Linda McCartney doing Mary had a little lamb and becomes just the epitome of uncool in the early seventies
1: yeah the, i mean the the, the the weird thing about the whole whole paul is dead scam fake news was that um it it was a big story in America, and I'm sure across um, American colleges, it didn't really register in England at all because it was American DJs, and you know we didn't really get the story in this country, or if we did, it was just like, aren't Americans weird? What what a funny idea? Because we knew Paul McCartney was alive because he was out and about in London, um, but yes, that it, it it it's 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 a weird metaphor, as you suggest, for his sort of transformation and it's also i find i found fascinating and i think i mentioned in the book it's almost as if beatles fans on mass particularly in america they worked out they looked <laughs> looked at the beatles catalog and what, what was happening in their lives they knew something was wrong but they missed the the obvious thing, which was actually at the time the Beatles, uh, the Paul is dead story comes out. What's really happened is that John's left the Beatles. They don't see that, but they know something's off. And so, oh, oh, Paul's out of step on the Abbey Road album cover. He must be dead. And they follow that sort of, um, to steal a phrase, dark horse for months and months or years. It's still going on today um, instead of actually looking at what was really happening.
0: And yet, even though Paul is the first one um to lose the goodwill of the public and and he does doggedly win it back by you know doing doing executing the plan he had for the Beatles of doing unannounced gigs at colleges and et cetera. And you know, by the time of band on the run, he's reestablished himself as a as a rock artist of interest and and you know, a popular performer, and goes on to have the most successful solo career, of The Beatles. But all four of them, have their public fall. I mean, John basically does everything he can to damage his reputation, and distance himself from the Beatles. But it's not until he moves to America and just loses the plot musically. I mean, what happened to John Lennon after he left England? That he just, ne- you know, the first two solo albums, Plastic On and Imagine, are are great and and can hold their heads up with any of the Beatles' solo work and much of the Beatles' catalog. And yet, from the time of of New York City, it's basically just crap until he throws in the towel in 1975 and and just takes five years off
1: well in his defense i'm gonna say that at the time i absolutely loved sometime in new york as a record i think i think john singe on that record is as good as anything in his career but yes a lot of the songwriting is certainly banal and naive and uh yeah substandard um and I, w- I would also make a case for walls and bridges, but we could argue about that. Well, you, you mentioned, to answer the question, you asked me what happened. He left England. Um, and although he fell in to a new culture, it wasn't his culture. He didn't understand it. It was Yoko's culture very much because she she had, had effectively become a New Yorker through the 1950s and early 60s. But it wasn't John's. And um, he he kept sort of chasing after the wrong bits of the culture, if you like. He tried to to convince himself and the world that he was just another New Yorker, but he wasn't. He was from Liverpool, and, um, and he, nothing he did when he was in America quite made sense in the same way um, as he had managed to do instinctively when he was in England.
0: Even though he reassembled much of the same team. I mean, he he had Phil Spector who had been his and George Harrison's producer in seventy seventy one, who salvaged, let it be, um, you know, worked with Klaus Foreman and so much of the same gang. I mean, another, point you bring out is that John and George and Ringo tended to work with the same musicians and sort of had a Beatles family going, but Paul broke decisively from that. But, but I want to get back on the, the plot and George has the most successful early career. I mean, You know, All Things Must Pass and and My Sweet Lord are this enormous successes. But then because of the multiple plagiarism suits, you know, My Sweet Lord is a rewrite of He's So Fine by the Chiffons. Although both of those songs are rewrites of many other songs. And and, uh, I think there's an argument to be made that, you know, that. It wasn't necessarily straight up plagiarism as much as just doing a particular three chord song with a melody that had been used many times before he's so fine. But I think that the plagiarism lawsuit damaged his reputation. And then he goes out on tour and records an album when he's so coked up that he can't even sing. What was going on with that?
1: Well, his marriage had broken up. Yes, you mentioned cocaine, which obviously had a big influence on everybody in the 1970s and the music culture, even the people who weren't taking it, it still impinged on their lives. Um, yeah, his, his marriage had broken up. He was he was having all, um, all the business problems of trying to set up his own label. He owed an album. And so he had to record the album at the time when he should have been rehearsing for the tour. And then when he goes out on the tour, not only can't he sing properly, but he has the affrontery to actually, um, to to, to be creative with some of the Beatles' back catalogue and to change the words of one or two songs and make them more spiritual. And this is not what people want from from an ex-Beatle. Already by the early 70s, the the ex-Beatles represent nostalgia for the mass concert-going audience. Um, And... Yeah, it's, it's interesting if you just switch away from George to look at Paul when he first went out on tour. Um, there, there was a lot of disquiet in Britain, certainly in 73. And again, when I saw him in 75, about the fact that he was he was doing almost zero Beatles songs. And as far as he was concerned, like George, he was being creative and moving forward and trying to establish, establish himself after the Beatles. But you'll note that the, the that By the time you get to the end of Wings and then again in the 80s, when Paul comes back at the end of the 80s and goes on the road, he's a nostalgia act. Um, and that's what people wanted.
0: Yeah. And Ringo, um, you know, had the had the most the least promising solo career, but he did manage to have a successful career primarily by in his first serious solo album Ringo in 1973 as a sort of faux Beatles reunion, because he was the only one who was able to get all four of them together to work on one project, even though Paul and Ringo work on a song, George and Ringo work on multiple songs, John and Ringo work on a song, and maybe John Ringo and George work on a song together as well. But, you know, he's able to, to ride on the Beatles goodwill for at least a couple of solo albums before it all peters out.
1: Yes. And, and in his, um, story that um, we mentioned cocaine i mean alcohol sadly for him i mean he i'm sure would admit it now he was a terrible alcoholic through the 70s and 80s um and he's a very rich celebrity who everybody in the world wants to be friends with everybody wants to party with and at the age of uh, he was born in 1940 so when in 74 75 when his career really started to go off the boil he's in his mid-30s and he doesn't think anything can touch him he's not aware that you know in health health ways and career ways he's going downhill he's just having a great time and he's laughing with his mates Um, and it would take more than a decade for him to sort of sober up and realize that if he wanted to stay stay alive never mind have a career he had to quit drink and drugs
0: and he finally does by the late 80s, but by that time, you know it, it's he's done incredible damage to his liver and, and his recording career is a dead letter by the late 70s. And that's one thing you know all four of these guys have some serious warts and and the love the Beatles that everybody loves in the 60s, all of them, um, have a serious negative side and you capture that without losing the positive things that we love about him. But I think John probably comes off the worst of all. I mean, it's, it's in a way good that he had the, the that he carved out the five years to have his own life and, and to experience some life without the pressure of the fame and the rat race. But at the same time, so many of the stories we hear from that era are not of a contented man baking bread and raising a baby the way that Yoko uh pitched it. So assiduously in the aftermath of his death, you know, there's there's also this picture of someone who's completely lost the plot. I mean, possibly a junkie all the way to the end, possibly still doing LSD in his in his apartment watching TV endlessly, jealous and 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 envious of Paul's success. It's a very sad tale,
1: isn't it? It is a sad tale, and going back to the start of that question, um, yes, we've already talked about after seventy-one something happens to his music, um, and it's true. I mean, I was such a huge John Lennon fan; I'm a huge. I, it completely broke my heart when he was killed in nineteen eighty, um, and so I worshipped everything he did in the seventies. But looking back, I mean, I, as I say, I like this bits I like, but it's not that great a catalog of work, really, unfortunately. Um, so. With the best intentions, he says, "Okay, I'm going to stand back. This isn't working." He knew he wasn't being creative in '75, '76, so he quite deliberately stepped back, and it coincided with when when Yoko became pregnant and they had their son, Sean. But yes, the 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 dream that they sold in 1980 when they came back, John and Yoko, um, about five years of bliss in the apartment baking bread and raising the baby john was as miserable as hell for most of that time particularly the last two or three years um and yes he was back on various kinds of drugs i don't know about acid but certainly he was dabbling with heroin with cocaine um and he was trapped he was completely trapped in his own life or lack of life and it's it's so sad because um i can't go into the details here unfortunately but when you, when you look at some of the um evidence that's been left behind which maybe I'll get to write about one day um you can see that john can't imagine a life beyond his relationship with yoko that is it as far as he's concerned and if that's not no he, he can't he, he can't think oh well maybe i should go back to england and and try try and be there for a couple of years all he can think is okay i'm in the dakota this is perfect this is perfect god i'm miserable and i don't know it's it's a sad story but then the the weird thing is that when, when he comes back with not really a great album double fantasy the interviews he does he sounds fantastic he sounds in most of them he sounds relaxed he's the old john lennon he's much wiser though but he's still funny he's still ironic um, he sounds warm. He sounds deeply in love with Yoko and Sean. And he sounds as if he thinks he's the most creative he's ever been. So you, I don't know, with with John, everything is a contradiction absolutely and and
0: it's it's great that he was able you know to do the like the playboy interview and sit down and, and discuss the whole beatles back cataloging detail and with some perspective which is a big contrast to his infamous lennon remembers interview with jan Winter of rolling stone in 1971 where he just trashed everybody and that was something that lennon did but usually privately and 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 expected to be forgiven for and and as derek taylor says and he was but when you do it publicly like that you can't really take it back
1: no he tried i I think i think i have a quote from george martin in the book they meet up in 71 and george martin says to john um i'm a bit upset about that interview and john was john says well you didn't take it seriously did you and well actually i did yes it was in rolling stone everybody read it and as far as john was concerned it was just how he was feeling that day Yeah, he's a very mercurial
0: person and here's uh, his final statement on Alan Klein. This is a John Lennon stealing glass. Was John Lennon's Stealing Glass. And, and no matter what you think about Alan Klein, you still have to feel for a guy who doesn't have a public platform to strike back when John Lennon's ripping you, even talking about your body odor.
1: Yeah, and, and in Klein's defense, he'd gone through the same thing with, with, with the court case in 1971 when Paul sued the other Beatles. Klein had to sit in court every day and listen to everybody else being awful about him. And because he wasn't a named... Um, person in the case he wasn't allowed to answer back and even the judge who criticized him severely did actually more or less apologize in court and say look i know this is really difficult so but yeah i think alan Alan klein got his own back in other ways usually financial yes yes
0: financial and legal the guy the guy definitely got his his pound of flesh and and you know the book goes on quite a bit after 1980 and, and you talk about how George Harrison had his kind of came to terms with the Beatles in the late 80s and was was able to reemerge into the public eye and had a hit solo album and then formed the Traveling Wilburys with Tom Petty and Bob Dylan and Roy Orbison and Jeff Lynne and kind of and, you know, and then has this career as a successful movie producer and owns an independent film company. But then that all comes to cropper, and and his empire collapses, and he ultimately does the Beatles anthology and the and the sort of reunion, free as a bird, under duress because he's broke.
1: Absolutely, I mean, as as you say, having having done Cloud Nine in um, whenever that was, eighty eight, something like eighty seven, eighty eight. Um, and he has he has number one single, you know, a huge hit album around the world. He does the Travelling breeze He's having a great time with his friends. He's on top of the world again. And he's almost not having to be a Beatle as well. Fantastic. And then, yes, his handmade film company um, dissolves in, in into financial chaos um, at the heart of which was his his then manager, Dennis O'Brien. Um, who's still alive, so I won't say too much about him. It, um, I've written about it in the book. There's a whole book about handmade films, if anybody's interested, which I think is called Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, something like that. Um, but, yeah, suddenly, from 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 being this multi-multi-millionaire with the world's biggest house and gardens, he's um, in danger of losing everything. And so, yeah, that is, that is probably the only time in his post-Beatles career that he would have been prepared to say, Okay, I'll get back together with Paul and Ringo and make some make some music. But if you want to know how George felt about it, look at the film. Um, I can't remember if it was actually in the anthology programs, but it's in the DVD package. And it's Paul, George and Ringo jamming on old sort of rock and roll songs. And Paul's showing off all the time. Ringo's really enjoying it. He's loving it. And George just looks as if he wants to be somewhere else.
0: Yes, and it's, it's clear it was very difficult for him to work for Paul again, and ultimately they couldn't finish the third John Lennon song that they tried to patch together. Um, but George ultimately pays for his fame with his life. I mean, you know, he's got a bout with cancer, and then uh, he's attacked by a madman who breaks into his house and nearly kills him.
1: Yep, who who claimed, claimed to be a fan in the same way as the guy who shot John Lennon claimed to have been a fan as well. Um one of George's closest aides said said to me a few years after George had died that at the time of that attack, he was getting over the cancer. It looked as if he was going to be OK. And that attack was so brutal, had such a devastating effect on his overall health that the cancer came back. Now, it's possible that there are oncologists out there who will say, well, that, no, it doesn't work like that. But that was how his his team saw it, that um he was more or less on the point of recovery, and then he was just completely knocked sideways by by that attack.
0: yeah, and it's you know one of the inescapable elements of the Beatles story is that that the positive, idealistic, optimistic message that they put out in the world was so attractive to people that it attracted the darkness to them as well. And and uh, one of your late friends, Ian McDonald, this classic book, Revolution in the Head, sort of makes a case for why that is. I'd love to get you on sometime and discuss Revolution in the Head because, you know, the subliminal messages and 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 the messianic message messaging that they played with, to some extent, they brought this darkness on themselves.
1: They did. Um, the, the very first line of of this book is a quote from alan Ginsberg, who i interviewed um a year or so before he died something like that and he was talking to me about bob, about working with bob dylan and he said fame is a curse with no redeeming features and i've used that in almost every book i've written since because it's such a great quote and it sums up everybody who's ever become famous which is why if you ever meet a young person who says You know, you ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be famous. Well, I tell them about Allen Ginsberg and Bob Dylan because fame is a curse with no redeeming features. And my God, the Beatles found that out.
0: Yes, they certainly did. But their music remains. And, you know, that's how you end the book that, you know, the music needs mo- no mythology. It's both timeless and a staggeringly accurate document of the age from which it's came. It's more magical than Magic Alex, more powerful than Alan Klein or the Eastman's, more acerbic than Lennon's wit, more refreshing than McCartney's charm, more solid than... Starkey's backbeat, more spiritual than Harrison's psyche. I mean, greater ultimately than the men who created it or the empire they built around it.
1: And and it still is. What's the last line? Sorry, you were going to read it. Uh, Yeah, their collective genius created something not even money could destroy. Yeah, (laughs) Sorry, you're not supposed to laugh at your own lines, but yes, (laughs) no, it's it's true. I I stand by that completely. Um, And that magic, certainly for anybody who was alive, either during or immediately after that period, that magic is always going to remain. Um, whether it's going to entice and charm people in future centuries, who knows? But, yeah, as, as it turned out, the the, the, the um, quote from the end, you know, about the, the, the love you make and the love you take and so on, well, the, the love they made in that music um, was large enough for the whole world to be able to take it and keep on taking it
0: absolutely and and now their heirs uh will have to deal with this business empire and you've got you know Stella McCartney and Julian and Sean Lennon and and especially Downey Harrison uh and Zach Starkey looking to inherit the mantle Linda McCartney's already passed on George has passed on Yoko is probably the most powerful force in the Beatles empire and she's getting up there and and Although she's still, you know, putting out documentaries, just put out a new one, basically taking credit for Imagine. Yeah, um, of course,
1: <laughs> why not?
0: Yeah, which I think she makes a pretty strong case. That's the thing about Yoko is, is as much as there's a negative case for Yoko, there's also so many positives. You know that she brought to the Beatles and brought to the world, uh, and brought to John. It's 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 a complicated tale, and I think you tell it very well. So thanks for coming on to discuss. You never give me your money. The Beatles after the breakup. That's Peter
3: Doggett.
2: Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Potomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Let it Come back Thursdays for our new show focusing on Mike Judge's Tales from the Tour Bus And next Monday, when author R.J. Smith joins the show to discuss his James Brown biography, The One. You Never Give Me Your Money, The Beatles After the Breakup, is published by Harper Paperback Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.